You know, when you were praying not too long ago, um, it's kind of interesting because you were praying about the enemy and you were praying about Memorial Day and you were praying about our identity that we have as Christians and you stole my sermon. It's Memorial Day weekend, and uh, some of you might recognize a flag like this. It has 48 stars. Maybe you had 48 stars when you were in high school. Um, this was given to me by a dear colleague of mine, Dave Zanstra. His uncle had got it from the Battle of the Bulge, <clears throat> given it to him. I think it was his uncle Andy. Maybe some of you know Andy. Dave tried to get the blood out of it, but there's still blood stains in it. Because for the younger folks in the audience who might understand this, as well as the older, this is the most expensive weekend that we have in the entire calendar. Correct? Most expensive. Most expensive. But you know what? A weekend like this weekend gives us a little bit of an identity as Americans, young, old, rich, poor. We all kind of gather together on this weekend, and we do all different kinds of variety of things. And some of the things that we do on a weekend like today, this weekend is we shiver. I think it was 41 degrees last night, and today is supposed to be the official, or tomorrow, the official start of summer, I guess, in some respects. But there are other things that kind of give us an identity. And if we take a look at the screen, maybe you can identify with some of these things. So, yes, today. Lessons from the left-hander. Get off the beach. Well, what kind of gives us an identity? Let's take a look at this. So if we, as we look here at the very first slide, if you can drive 75 miles an hour through two feet of snow during a raging blizzard without flinching, must live. If you measure distance in hours, if you <laughs> worn shorts and parka at the same time last night, you must be from Northwest Indiana. If you switch from heat to AC in the same day and back again, you must be from Northwest Indiana. If you carry jumper cables in your car and your 15-year-old daughter knows how to use them, you must be from Northwest Indiana. If the speed limit on the highway, yes, 41 this morning, was 55 and you're going 80 and everybody's passing you, you must be from Northwest Indiana. If driving is better in the winter because of the potholes are filled with snow. And I know there are some people from across the border, so we'll look at the next one. If you know all four seasons, almost winter, winter, still winter, that was yesterday, and road construction, you must be from Chicago, or at least the Chicago area. And if you design your kid's Halloween costume to fit over a snowsuit, snow, I'm sorry, fit over a snowsuit, you must be from or Northwest Indiana. We laugh at these things. You know why we laugh at these things? Because it doesn't matter, young, old, rich or poor, if you're from this region, you understand these and you laugh because it gives us an identity. But there's also other identities too. Are there any left-handers in the room? How do you people live? <laughs> you know, it's hard to sit next to you folks in a restaurant they give you special scissors. Um, and, and, and if you're a, a little league coach, you don't even know where to put the left-handed dick. 
Okay. Do you put him at? You can't put him in the infield. Now some of you are going to say, well, wait a minute. Anthony, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Rizzo, you know, he's left-handed. He can play. Yeah, that's the one exception. But I think about what is oftentimes said about left-handers. We're all born right-handed, but left-handers will say it's the gifted ones that have learned to overcome it. So if we look at this, we've even made special mugs for you folks so that you feel good. But when I grade my students' papers and I walk up and down as I, I see them taking tests, I see this a lot. Because you left-handers, you write upside down and then you smudge all my tests. And they made a special glove for you folks. That's right, so you don't smudge anymore. Do you have one of those? No? Would you want to get one? Okay. <laughs> but people of God, what we're to talk about today is not just about left-handers, even though we're going to be looking at a left-handed person. The background of what we're looking at today is about the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt. When they came out of Egypt, God had to create for them a brand new identity. What's going to tie them together? And when God creates this identity for them, he tells them, you're going to go into a new land. And when you go into that new land, you are going to conquer the land and you're going to destroy the sin that's in that land. And remember, the people that are living there, this land isn't theirs. This land belongs to you and you've got to reclaim it. God's requiring you to reclaim that in so many ways we look at today. And I think you said it in your prayer. God, let us reclaim our nation. Let our leaders reclaim our nation. And this nation of Israel, actually, it's not quite the nation of Israel yet. It's all these warlords that are controlling what would become Israel, the new Israel. It's possessed by warlords, tribal kings, kings like Eglon. But before God brings them into this brand new brand new establishment, he's going to create for them a remnant. And now what is a remnant? A remnant is a special group of people. And you know what he's going to do for these people? He's going to put them through boot camp. That's right, 40 years of boot camp. 40 years of getting rid of anybody who's going to go against the unity of this group and draw them together. Now my son, he just returned from Ukraine a few weeks ago, but I remember when he was in boot camp. And some of you possibly in here have been in boot camp, and you know what that's like. The whole entire purpose of boot camp is to break you down personally, as well as the entire group, and then to what? Build you, build you back up. So God's going to build them back up, and he's going to build them back up by giving them rules and laws. And these laws are going to be for protection, they're going to be to set apart, and they're going to be for just sheer flat-out obedience. So yeah, here you've got four million people coming into this desert. They have to live together for 40 years, and God's going to give them Rules about protection. Rules about hygiene. you got four million people living together. You just can't do what you want and when you want. You have to follow some serious rules, otherwise we're all going to get sick. There's certain animals you can't eat. Because if you eat these animals, you're going to get sick. So God gives rules for protection. But then God gives rules to set apart. Don't trim the sides of your beards. You're going to have a certain kind of clothing. Don't match certain kinds of threads. In other words, you are going to look different than the people around you. As you go into my promised land, there's going to be neighbors, and those neighbors, there's going to be a distinction between my people, my remnant, and the outside world. And finally, there's going to be some laws just because God's God. 
and he wants you to obey it. Maybe some of you in this room have been employers, and sometimes maybe your employees have said, but boss, I want to do it this way. And you said, no, do it my way. Well, why? Because I'm the boss. I want it done that way. I've coached for many years, and, and one time had a varsity coach. He was the head of the program, and he required that we all wear ties to every away game. Why? Doesn't make us play better. We take the ties off as soon as we get off the bus and in the locker room anyway. But he says, I'm the varsity coach, and I want it this way. So God, when he brings these people out, he says, you are going to act different, you're going to look different, and you're going to be different. Christians today, we've got to act different, look different, and be different. So Israel goes into the promised land, and when they gain the promised land, regrettably Joshua perishes, or Joshua dies. And after Joshua dies, what happens? We see it cycle and cycle and cycle again. And as we see this cycle, we see four things that take place. Four things that take place. It just takes one generation, one generation to collapse something. And so I encourage you this week to maybe read through that book of Judges and look at all these judges over and over. What does that say for America today? What does that say for the Church of Jesus Christ? It takes one generation to see it entirely crumble. So we see them go through disobedience. We see them go through despair. And then God gives a deliverer. And then after there's a deliverer, there's a personal connection once again back to God. So we're looking at all this background right now. And as we get ready and get into our story, we see that this is being written by Samuel. And Samuel, I love how Samuel writes this book. He draws each judge with a unique character. Unique descriptions are given to each character. And once again, the story that we're looking at today, Israel's captive. And Israel is captive by a king, Eglon. And where Israel's located, if you could advance the slide, I'd like to take a look here at the map. Now, maybe you can't see this map real clearly, but right there in the middle is the tribe of Benjamin. That's the main crux of this story. The entire region's about the size of New Jersey. Okay, But where these battles are going to take place here in Judges 2 and 3 is about the area the size of Jasper, Lake, Cook, and Will County. And if we know anything about this entire region here, this entire region here is a major transportation hub for the entire Midwest. We all know that. And at that time, where Eglon was king over, that was a major, major transportation hub. If anything is coming from from the east, and it has to somehow get to the Mediterranean Sea, it's got to go through that corridor, that mountainous corridor to the, Red, or to the Mediterranean Sea. If it, things have to go down to Egypt, they've got to go through that corridor. Sound familiar? The corridor right out here, I-80, I-65, I-41, major, major corridor. And this region, Eglon demands from the people of God tribute. He has taken over. He's a warlord, and he demands from God's people, you owe me something. Think about what an insult to God that is. Think about if you as a parent gave your kid a bicycle, and then the bully on the street steals the bike and then tells your kid if he wants to ride the bike, he's got to give him his allowance every week. Think about that. For God, wait a minute, I gave this land and I gave all these possessions to my people, and Eglon, you have taken it? 
and now you make my people pay for it? We see the story start to unfold. And Israel cries out for a deliverer. And when Israel cries out for a deliverer, God's going to send him a left-hander. But we also, we also wonder, why are these stories even in Scripture? I mean, is Scripture just a big collection of just one little story after another after another? No. The culmination of all these stories can be found in John 20, verse 31. In John 20, verse 31, it says, But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why this story is here. That's why the story of Deborah is in the Scriptures. That's why the stories of David are here. They all are going to point to that Messiah. So as we look here at God's Word, and it says, Once again, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, and because they did the evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel, getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him. Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. For 18 years, he demanded tribute. For 18 years, he is in control of this region, this major, major trading hub. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Think about it, sent him with tribute. So here's Ehud. He is the dutiful judge. Oh, yes, he, he judges over the Israelites. He hears their concerns. He renders decisions over the Israelites. But one time every year, he's got to grovel. One time every year, he's got to go to Eglon, and he has to pay tribute. Really? Really, Ehud? You are God's messenger, and you're groveling? You're groveling to a warlord? Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Okay, there comes a time now where Ehud says no more. No more groveling. No more being dutiful. Now it's time for action. And please, notice when, you, when we see these words, it's not like somehow he's raising up an army saying, hey folks, I'm going to do something here. I'm going to take care of that king for us. No. He makes a personal decision. In my heart, this is done. This is over. I am bringing forth now a new, new order. And this order is coming from God. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. So this is a pretty, pretty large, large ransom that they have to pay every single year. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Think about what just happened here. Outside of Eglon's kingdom, he sets up idols that are there for protection. These idols are what protects this kingdom of Eglon. Remember what happened when the Israelites crossed the Jordan? They set up stones. And the reason why they set up stones is because they wanted to remember. They wanted to remember God's goodness and bring them into the land of Israel. 
And so when your children ask, Father, what are these stones? You tell your kids, these stones represent the God who protects us, who brought us out of Egypt. But here, here you have idols. And these idols are protecting this kingdom. So what happens? Ehud goes right past those idols, dusts himself off. All right, you idols, you're going to protect this king? Let's see how good you are at doing it. And he goes back to Eglon. And when he goes back to Eglon, Eglon is in his upper room, up on the top of the palace, the place where you relieve yourself. And he says, I've got a secret message for you. Now think about this. Kings at that time, these warlords, were always looking over their shoulder. They never knew who was going to maybe kind of usurp them. But King Eglon says, the king said, quiet. And all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace. In other words, you got something to say to me? Say to me. Say it to me. And by the way, I'm not getting off, off of the toilet here. Okay, because that's what you are to me. You are low. And I don't even have to get up for you. And that's when Ehud says, it's almost like a Hollywood movie. I have a message to you from God. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand because a right-handed person would be concealing or having a weapon on his other thigh. But here, he draws it and he plunges it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house, and they waited at a point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked it. And there they saw their Lord fall into the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols, take that idols, and he went to Sirah. And when he gets to Sirah, he tells the people of Israel, the king is dead. Now is our opportunity. And what happens, you can read this in Judges 3, what happens is the Lord will deliver this, this land back to the remnant, and the people will have peace for 80 years. For 80 years. So let's look at these key players all over again, because this is an important story. Ehud, a left-hander. And it's interesting, because so often in biblical times, when we hear the names of what, they, of what these characters are, their names oftentimes identify themselves. And Ehud, interestingly enough, his name meant son of my right hand. But the left hand is going to carry out God's will. Something else about this. He has a unique weapon. And he's also from the tribe of Benjamin. In Scripture, it's really unique. I mean, put it this way. We all know of sports teams out there. There are certain sports teams that live on in our memory. If we think about the 85 Bears, what were the 85 Bears known for? Defense, okay? What was the, the greatest show on turf, okay? The, at that time, it was the St. Louis Rams for nothing but offense. What were the Benjamites known for at that time? For when they practiced and when they prepared, because every tribe had always trained for battle, they prepared with their right hand and with their left hand. Okay, they learned to prepare for both, interestingly enough. So he's a Benjamite, 
That's not by coincidence. And he has a unique weapon. When I was a kid growing up, oh, I loved this movie. And you know what? In this movie, there are all these different people who had different weapons. Who wants a lightsaber when you can have a blaster? Right, kids? But in this book of Judges, it's interesting how many judges we see. Shamgar has an ox goad. Jehel and Deborah use a tent snake. Samson has a jawbone. It seems like every person in this book of Judges has some special kind of weapon. And for Ehud, think about it, for Ehud, at that time in the Iron Age, it would take a long, long time in the blacksmith shop of forging that kind of weapon. And it wasn't uncommon either for certain warlords to not allow their subjects to own certain kinds of weapons so that they never rise up against them. So for Ehud, when he makes that decision, no more. No more groveling. You've got to think about it. Every time he's hammering that sword and fashioning it, it's taking time. Could be weeks. He's got to do it sometimes, in which maybe during a thunderstorm, because you know what? As you bang on that anvil, it's go there's going to be a sound made. People are going to be knowing you're doing this. So this is going to be planned. This whole action of Ehud is going to be a methodical, planned out, deliberate action. And then Eglon. Isn't this funny about this unique character? His name supposedly means little calf. But the Bible makes it very clear that he's a fat man. And that's unique because he was a mockery to Israel. When God took that, the people out of Egypt and he gave them that identity, he said to them, you're a family. You are a unified family, and you are not going to allow any person to be a beggar in this entire, in this entire kingdom. You are going to take care of each other. And what do we have here? We have the people of Israel having to pay tribute. Tribute to a man who can get fat off of the goods that belong to God's people. His largeness is because he has stolen from God's people. That's why he's large. He has taken what's supposed to be for the poor, it's supposed to be for all the remnant, and he's taken it for himself. He's a mockery. And as we said a few moments ago, his idols supposedly protect him. Judges 2, verse 18 says the following, Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was the judge that saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. So God raises up for us Ehud. And as he raises up for us Ehud, we see the, the plot unfold again. Just to kind of recap where we've been, we see this deed. We see those deeds of the idols supposedly protecting him. We see Ehud bring the message. I got a message from God for you. He's in the upper room. We're going to do this in secret. And finally, we know what happens to Eglon. He's embarrassed. His entrails spill out. So what's the lesson? There's a lot of lessons. I'm just going to look at a few of them. But I'm sure if you reread the story tonight, God's word will be open up to your heart and mind, and you'll find five more lessons. But what are some of the lessons here? Israel has to cut this sin out. We've got to cut the sin out. For Ehud, I've got to get rid of this sin. I've got to cut this sin out. And then what happens? 
when Ehud does go back to the people of God and he says, we have a moment here, it's not about Ehud. It's not about, look what I've done. I've taken care of the warlord. Everything goes back to God. The Lord has given Moab, is what Ehud says. And what does that mean for us? That means that we got some work to do. What does this also mean about my God? You said it in the prayer. Go up against my God, and you'll lose. People of God, think about that. We know that in the book of 2 Peter 3, verse 3, it says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their evil desires. We know that's coming. We see that today. We see that in the newspapers. We see that in the media. We see that in, on cable TV. We see political elites. We see financial elites. We see big tech elites, and all they do is make fun of God. They scoff at God, just like Eglon scoffed at God. And what we have to realize is that someday those scoffers will lose, and they just won't lose. Like Eglon, they'll be embarrassed. I've coached a long time, 30-plus years. It's one thing to lose to a team that's good, that's just better than you, that worked harder than you, but it's another thing to get embarrassed. And when Eglon, when his entrails are spilled out, and the stink and the aroma, and it's a horrifying, and, and now they come in and they see him, that's the message from our God. The message from our God is, you don't own the remnant of Israel. You don't own the remnant of Christian people in this world. No, devil. You don't own this. In fact, if you are with Satan, and you're those scoffers, you will lose, and you'll be embarrassed doing it. This guy, Eglon, he had no moral accountability. Nobody ever told him no. We, maybe we know some people who never, ever get told no. Those political elites, financial elites in our society, the big tech elites, they've got so much wealth and influence, nobody ever tells them what? No. So that means we've got some more work to do. Ehud for us, is a Christ-like figure. So many of these Bible characters were Christ-like figures. Think about this. For the next 1,000 years, children will ask their mothers and fathers, will the Messiah someday be like Ehud? I'm sure a father and mother would say, yeah. The Messiah is going to have the courage of Ehud. The Messiah is going to have the temperament of Samuel. The Messiah is going to have the compassion of Esther, the heart of David, the wisdom of Solomon. The Messiah is going to have all of these characters and so much more. And when the, that Messiah comes, that Messiah is going to tell us that we've got some more work to do. And that's why when we think about Romans 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Because these stories are here in Scripture that, as we said 20 minutes ago from John 20, verse 31, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So get off the beach. Get off the beach. What? When I was 
invited to be here today. It was on the very day in which I was covering D-Day with my students. I found that unique. Hope is inviting me to come and speak on their Sunday service, Memorial Day weekend, and I just happen to be teaching D-Day today. And next Sunday, it's going to be the 6th, next Sunday is that anniversary of D-Day. And I think about D-Day, many of you maybe this week, as we get closer and closer to that anniversary, you might turn on the History Channel and you might see these images of these famous beaches that have been so forever etched. We can go back one slide. So forever etched in our memory, Omaha, gold, Juno, sword. And what happened there that day and how it ties into Memorial Day. And what happened there is that these guys went through boot camp. See, what happened actually four years prior, and maybe many of you remember this, there was that retreat at Dunkirk. That retreat that took place between June 4 and June 6, when the evil and the enemy pushed the Allies off the continent. And then it took some dusting off, and it took some regrouping, and it took some, the Allies to come together four years later to have this assault. And when we think about us in our own lives, we oftentimes have been through that spiritual boot camp. And now it's time, as you said in your prayer, for us to take on the enemy. It's for us to get on that beach, to be like Ehud and to say enough's enough. To be like Ehud and say, you know what? I've been dutiful. But now I've got to go on the attack. And the only way that those guys there in 1944 were going to take that beach is to get off the beach and up onto the dunes. Some hid behind those hedgehogs, those big steel barriers, and they shot a little bit at the enemy, and they kept the enemy a little bit occupied. But that doesn't take the beach. Maybe some of us in this room, Hope Church, maybe some of you do that from time to time. You take a couple shots at the enemy, but then you play it safe behind, behind what's comfortable. But that doesn't take the victory. It keeps the enemy occupied a little bit, but it doesn't take the victory. It doesn't get up that beach. You know what it takes to get up that beach? It doesn't take Pastor Andy. Pastor Andy, there's a, there was plenty of lieutenants. And there's plenty of sergeants who said, guys, follow me up the beach. And you know what? When the devil attacks, there's people who end up going down because the devil is hard. No, what took place is that those guys learned in boot camp how they had to take that beach. It was each guy on his own having that intestinal fortitude to go up that beach. And it also took somebody grabbing by the collar and saying, we got to get up that dune. Hope Church, look around because these are the people you're going up the beach with. Who in this room are you going to grab by the collar and say, come on, let's get up the beach? And maybe, maybe you've been like Ehud far too long, as I've said already, sitting back. Maybe there are things you should have said in the school boardroom, but you didn't. You didn't attack the enemy. You just played it safe and laid low. Maybe there are things in the church council room. Maybe there are things at work. Maybe there are things at school where you just kind of played it safe, did a little bit of tribute. But now it's time 
to wield that sword and go at the enemy. And when you do, the attacks are going to come hard. You get from behind that hedgehog and you go up that dune, you, are a, you have a target right there for the enemy and he's going to lock in his sights on you. But that's how victory is won and that's what God commands of us. Maybe as a parent, maybe you've been laying low, laying back. And maybe now this week, your children say to you, but dad, you never cared if we did. Yeah, but you know what? Times are changed. Now you have fashioned your sword and you are now thinking about how you, like Ehud, are making that change and you are now going at the enemy. Ehud made that change. He was dutiful for maybe 18 years, but then he went up the beach. And so today, everybody gets a little, little gift on this Memorial Day weekend. As you head out of the sanctuary today, there's a nice little file with beach sand in it. And with that beach sand, maybe you just kind of keep this on the dashboard of your truck. Maybe you put it in your locker next year at school. Maybe you put it on your desk at work. And it continues to be a reminder to you of the lessons of the, left, of the left-hander. And that is to get off the beach. Get off the beach. Let's pray, people of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've not just given us stories in Scripture that are interesting and that are unique to read. You've given us stories that show us how to live, show us how they point to you as the great Messiah of your work. You've given us stories, Lord, and you, we ask that you help us get off this beach. You have trained us, and you command us to get up that hill. And as in the words of Romans 8, verse 31, you are for us, so... Who cares who's against us? And with your help, O oh Lord, we are getting up that beach and up those dunes, and we're not laying back anymore. We're not just being dutiful, but that we are fighting with the sword of the Spirit. Grant us a good measure of your peace throughout this day, Lord, and through this weekend as so many people travel, as they enjoy time together, as they look at what is their identity possibly as Americans, but more or less, more than that, Lord, we ask what is your identity for us as your people, as your remnant? We ask, Lord, for a good day. Amen.